My name is Don Lawton, and I seek to understand uh, the response of the Earth through a whole range of uh, induced measurements, uh, particularly what we call seismic measurements. And the goal is using this technology to verify secure storage of CO2 in the, in the subsurface as part of climate mitigation measures. Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off, in-depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, I have a conversation with Don Lawton of Carbon Management Canada and Mark Tinker of Quantum Technology Sciences, showcasing the latest technological advances for carbon capture, utilization, and storage. In this cutting-edge conversation on the state of technology for CCUS, Don and Mark highlight the need to accelerate the development and implementation of CCUS technologies, illustrate what better carbon storage monitoring technologies would mean for the climate, and outline how to overcome the challenges of scale. Mark also discusses real field applications of the latest technology and the unique opportunities Carbon Management Canada offers to develop new tools to address a net zero emission future. Visit seg.org podcast to read Don and Mark's full biographies and find the complete archive of the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Geospace Technologies. As a leading innovator and manufacturer of wireless seismic data acquisition systems, Geospace Technologies offers a series of seabed wireless seismic data acquisition systems designed for extended duration seabed seismic data acquisition. Geospace is committed to setting new standards for quality, performance, reliability, and cost savings to EMP companies and marine geophysical contractors. Stay through the end of this podcast to learn how in under five seconds you can show your appreciation for this free podcast. And now, my conversation with Don and Mark. Could you tell us a little bit about Carbon Management Canada? Sure. Carbon Management Canada, or CMC as we generally call it, is a is a not-for-profit corporation that's affiliated with the University of Calgary. And the goal of CMC is to advance technologies for reducing CO2 emissions into the atmosphere through a range of different uh, either storage or conversion of CO2 to either useful products or storing it underground. My particular focus is with uh, one of the institutes within CMC called the Containment and Monitoring Institute, or CAMI for short, uh, where we are doing a small-scale injection of CO2 into the subsurface to to develop the technologies to monitor where it goes, including the SEDA one that uh, Mark will be talking about, so we can upscale uh, CO2 storage to gigaton scales and be able to do it uh, securely and safely and make a difference to uh, or make uh, a significant contribution to reduction in emissions. Why is there a need right now to accelerate the development and impl- implementation of technologies that capture, store, and monitor greenhouse gases? Well, if you look at the the long-term goals for emissions reductions, uh, we, we hear a lot these days of net zero carbon by 2050 or net zero carbon economy uh, that's being now uh, promoted both by industry and governments. And to get there is a huge challenge. You know, we're over 35 gigatons of, of CO2 being emitted uh, annually. So we need all possible uh, technologies to reduce those emissions. 
and a key one is actually capturing the CO2 and storing it underground. Uh, the energy transition is is going to occur over many decades, which means we we have to continue the use of fossil fuels in that transition period. So let's do it in a way that is uh, the least environmentally impactful, and and by being able to capture those CO2 emissions from large point emitters, or even capturing it out of the air, uh, because uh, capturing CO2 out of transportation vehicles is difficult. So we can capture it directly out of the air and then uh, store it underground or potentially use it for enhanced oil recovery as well, where we leave a significant proportion of the CO2 in the ground during that process. So it's really to uh, advance the technologies to be able to make a difference in the climate mitigation programs that the governments and industry are looking at. You know, uh, enhanced oil recovery has been a, a topic on this podcast recently. You know, what what would better carbon storage monitoring technologies mean for the overall climate or reaching these net zero goals? Yeah, we really need to be storing huge volumes. There's the number of projects is around 30 to 40 existing projects where we're, we're storing, say, uh, the, the larger ones are one to two million tons per year. But we need to uh, increase that by two to three orders of magnitude. So we need very large-scale repositories for, for, for CO2. And then when we're doing this at scale, obviously we need to be able to uh, verify that it's all uh, occurring as we predict. And therefore, we need the monitoring technology to do it. Uh, that being said, if we're injecting very large plumes underground or you know, space, large spatial areas, what are the technologies that, that are most appropriate at scale that are both uh, effective but also uh, in terms of the technology, but uh, also cost-effective. So that's really what we're looking at finding. How, how do we monitor these huge storage opportunities? Maybe Mark could add on that now. Yeah, Don's right. So we, anytime we interact with the subsurface of the Earth with the uh, injection or extraction of fluids, liquids or gases, the Earth has a seismic expression. You know, it grinds and groans and makes these little micro-earthquakes. It's been doing this forever, whenever we interact with it. Um, it's not exactly the same thing as induced seismicity. I mean, it, it is, but I'm not referring to larger scale induced seismicity challenges that are going on on elsewhere. So from a carbon storage specific standpoint, as Don was saying, when we, when we put this gas into the ground in whatever state it might be in at large scales, we need to assure ourselves that it's staying there. So we do the analysis up front. We determine that these reservoirs are sound and can, and, and can meet the scale that is necessary. But we can't go and have a man-on-the-moon type project in terms of cost and logistics to then make sure that it stays there. That's what I'm pretty excited about in the collaboration with Don, which is how are we going to do this at these large scales? We can't blanket the surface of the earth with hundreds of thousands of sensors. We'd have all sorts of costs, logistics, and even just landowner challenges, unless they're all underwater. Are we going to go drill? We're going to go put holes in the ground at depth with sensors down them. All of that is possible and viable and may also be legitimate. But what we're excited to be testing with Don is this capability of this middle ground space where we can reduce the footprint necessary for monitoring and permanently leave it there. And on top of that, provide a real-time answer. So this is all about providing actionable information, providing a real-time answer to the stakeholders so they can enhance their efficiencies while reducing their risks. 
Yeah, that's a perfect lead into the next question. I really like that idea of seismic expression. So, Mark, what is the role of, of this passive seismic technologies in monitoring greenhouse gases? You begin to, to hint at it right there. Well, let's be clear. Seismic and monitoring gases can only occur when the gases are underground and can break things that then emit energy. <laughs> we don't have any effect in monitoring something floating around in the atmosphere. We are a vibration science, and we like to try to capture that energy. So what's different? Well, we've been providing various um, security and surveillance solutions to the United States government for all sorts of missions. And along the way, we were able to create a, a capability called SADAR. It stands for Seismic Acoustic Detection and Ranging. Sounds like sonar, sounds like radar, because the mathematics are the same. We're a passive version of that. So we're a passive sonar system for the Earth. Why is that important? Because these small SADAR arrays are able to increase the range to that same source of energy because we used phased array processing, which is just a fancy term for putting a bunch of sensors in the ground that are closely spaced and enhancing the signal that they're trying to target while reducing and cutting through the noise that we have to deal with from everything else going on the surface of the Earth. So we can do it with a smaller footprint, better signal to noise, and then on top of that, provide a real-time answer where these systems automatically build these micro-seismic profiles. Could you help paint us a picture of a use case of this technology in the field? You bet. And, and let's just start with Don's facility. So Don has a, a carbon storage facility. They inject carbon. We've been able to deploy a few of our arrays there. And by deploying, I mean these things go not on the surface of the earth, but not deep into the earth either. They find that middle ground and they sit and they listen. And they're constantly pointing at where all the energy that they're hearing is coming from in real time. Our algorithms kick in and they say, aha, this is something that you've told me to pay attention to. It's in the right location. It looks or more appropriately sounds like it's supposed to sound. I'm going to pay attention to this and give you an answer. And that, so that use case is, if I hear creaking and cracking, does it matter? So am I going to break the integrity of my reservoir or that cap rock that is holding this gas in place? Have I unintentionally overpressurized it? Am I seeing something that I didn't expect to see? So if we can sit there and listen to the, this seismic expression and saying, is this normal? Or are we having an anomalous occurrence of microseismicity that we need to pay attention to? And then in, bring in other technologies above and beyond the value that we're adding. So it's an alerting function. Uh, Don, Mark mentioned it there. Your nonprofit, Carbon Management Canada, provides these facilities to field test early stage technologies. What does your nonprofit hope to achieve by providing these facilities? That's exactly as, as Mark described. Uh, we're, if, if we're monitoring large-scale CO2 storage, we need efficient and cost-effective uh, solutions to, the, to that monitoring. So, uh, you know, traditionally, if we look at how we observe the subsurface over time, a good example are what are called 4D or time-lapse seismic surveys, where we do a surface seismic survey, we then process the data, uh, and then we interpret it, and we look for changes. And that process can take months. 
and will miss transient effect, which can be sometimes the most important. So uh, we're really interested in technologies that can provide this uh, real-time solution. And as, as Mark said, this is a really a step change in how we can monitor the subsurface because we can then react to it immediately or mitigate it by you know, changing, the. in the case of a CO2 storage project, we could change the uh, the injection pressures or which injection well is active. But that's a, the ability to find technologies that can be providing us pictures of the subsurface in real time is really key to large-scale monitoring. And uh, so our facility is looking at the, uh, creating this opportunity for companies like Geospace Quantum to come and uh, install as proof of concept these types of arrays for the CCES industry. You know, Mark, maybe outside of the real-time aspect of this technology, what most excites you about SADAR? Well, it's been the pinnacle of where we at Quantum have been trying to get to for literally more than 20 years. So we, when you put a single sensor in the ground, it, you, have, you hear everything on one line of wiggles. <laughs> and that's hard. It's hard to decipher where every single wiggle is coming from. So over the years, we've been able to evolve and get to this much better enhanced understanding that allows us to cut through things that we don't want to hear and focus on the things that we do. And those applications are far and wide. In, in energy, it can be beyond just carbon capture. We could look at things like steam-assisted gravity drainage. Can we increase pressures while ensuring in real time the integrity of our reservoir remains intact? Does it have hydraulic fracturing capabilities? Does it assist in geothermal? So the list kind of goes on and on. We also have applied it in our other, I'll say, careers in the security and surveillance space where we're providing real-time information for you know, perimeter security or, or other similar functions. So SADAR is just exciting because I, we're still untapping it. We're still figuring out what its limits are in terms of the physics. And that's that's kind of neat when I, when I don't think we've kind of, when we haven't hit our head against that wall quite yet. So it's very inspiring to be able to to explore those limits. And that's exactly, again, and I'll say this with Don's facility, which is just first rate. We're able to go right up to the limits and say, this is where we think the limits of the physics from this particular style of monitoring are drawn. Now, does that work? What do we do, need to do to make that work? If this partnership between CMC and Geospace Quantum reaches its full potential, what will it achieve? Well, the... Uh it's proof of concept uh, initially, and then this ability to to look at the subsurface and, and changes that are happening in real time. Then the the next step for us is is our what we call our playground at the at the CAMI site is to demonstrate the the efficacy of these technologies, and then see them. Uh, the, the uptake of these technologies in commercial CCS projects. You know, that's the end game for us. We're wanting to accelerate uh, implementation of carbon capture and storage uh, technologies and, and projects as quickly as possible, uh, because the you know the pressure is on for emissions reductions even by 2030. Uh, so there's huge pressure to develop these large-scale injection facilities. Uh, very quickly. So we're uh, really wanting to demonstrate what technologies are going to be very effective uh, for that development. So that's our end game. Yeah, and for us, that rolls right into what we're trying to do too, is, is the laboratory that they have up there, you know, in quotes, is amazing. So when I say I want to understand the bounds of the physics, what that literally means is I need to understand the thresholds 
to which we are able to monitor. So what magnitudes can we monitor down to to produce an automatic location would be a threshold. What are, what are our location thresholds as a function of the design of the system? Yeah, and that, that integrates so well with everything that we're doing at site. So we have can have multiple solutions uh, with different monitoring technologies and be able to uh, come up with a coherent uh, analysis of, of those results. So uh, it's, it's adding to the framework of, of, of a range of technologies and then determining which of them uh, is the most effective and at what scale. And then we sit on top of that price, cost, what's it take? There's a little slider bar there that says, well, these are our thresholds, but if I you know, throw more money at it, I can get this little bit of extra improvement or less money at it or more logistics or reduce the footprint even further. So there's a little bit of a trade space in there that we'll also be able to understand so that we can provide this capability in the manner that's most cost-effective, most logistically effective, has the longest life cycle to it possible for these important applications. You know, outside of this development of passive seismic technologies, what other challenges will need to be overcome to scale CCUS's commercial applications? So that, I think, uh, I mean, one is cost. So there needs to be uh, incentives or uh, some other uh, financial mechanism to accelerate the process. Um, the storage side is actually not the most expensive part of CCES. It's the the capture from uh, CO2 out of, say, uh, exhaust flows or flue gases. So there's, you know, society has to recognize that to, to meet our climate targets, there is going to be a cost. Uh, so how we, how we monetize that to try to finance the uh, development of these, these facilities is, is one of the challenges. And then you know, on the technology side, going from a million tons a year to you know, 100 million tons a year within one particular field, uh, one area, uh, is going to be the challenge in terms of monitoring and understanding what happens. And we're replacing, typically injecting into aquifers, deep aquifers, so we're replacing that water or moving it somewhere else. So uh, there's, there's lots of physics challenges at scale, but I think we know how to tackle them, and we just need to implement them carefully and monitor it. What is something that the layperson and or public officials commonly get wrong when discussing carbon capture, storage, and monitoring? Yeah, I think there's two things. One is on the, the, the technology side. They think, well, it's, it'll leak back to the surface. So you can't guarantee it's going to be uh, there forever. So uh, they're afraid it's a technology that will fail. Uh, they don't understand that uh, uh, we can do this securely. And then on the policy side, uh, there's this pushback saying, well, this is simply a benefit to keep the oil and gas energy usage going, uh, where, was, where we should be just immediately transitioning to, to renewables or geothermal or, or some other uh, non-fossil-based energy source. But uh, the reality is that we are going to, as I mentioned earlier, oil and gas is going to be an energy source for a long time to come. So we need to ensure we can use it in the most environmentally, minimally impactful method as possible. If CCUS reached scale, how big of a part would it play in the overall contribution to this net zero emission future or reaching these net zero goals that we have? So if you look at the the studies that have been done by the International Energy Agency and others, uh, the the role of CCUS is probably somewhere between 15 to 18 percent of the total solution. You know, it doesn't sound a lot, but it's it's actually huge because it can be implemented now. Uh, 
Uh, a lot of the other, if you look at the IEA, has these series of wedges that take us from our current emissions to how to get to net zero by 2050. There's a whole lot. There's you know there's uh, uh, renewables. There's uh, uh, greater efficiency. But the uh, CCUS is something that we can develop now, and that's, that's the target somewhere between uh, 15, 18 percent of, of the goal. Lastly here, and as for both of you, what principal teaching or point of view has helped you succeed in your field? So I think uh, so I'll, I'll take that uh, first. I think it's been really working in an integrated manner with, with scientists and engineers uh, to deal with what are really re- well-scale problems. And uh, I've done that through my, my former career as a, as a university professor at the University of Calgary. I, I taught geophysics for 40 years uh, in a way that to make that tool useful for societal needs. And uh, now that's rolled over into implementing that technology, you know, those, those ideas into a field laboratory and then working with receptors uh, in terms of the industries that will make use of, of the of CCUS, which includes not only oil and gas, but other large emitting industries such as cement, fertilizer, steel, and then working with technology companies like Mark's company, uh, which is really exciting to, to advance these technologies and understand the physics associated with them. So that's that's been my modus operandi for my 40-year career. And for me, my freshman year of college, my I was a majored in geology, but I did quite a bit of engineering. And the, my engineering professor said, Mark, scientists discover and engineers create. And I thought, well, I want to do both. <laughs> so good science is, is good science. And sometimes it operates on really long wavelengths. It's full of failures, which is important. But I have been very fortunate to be on the other end of the short wavelength part, where trying to do good science, but by delivering operational solutions quickly. And that has an element of social relevance to it that just keeps me excited, gets me out of bed every morning to feel like, hey, we're doing our little small part here on a, on a giant human scale, global scale team of scientists, engineers, making a difference in everything we deal with as humans. It's really a pleasure to be able to, to do this little smart part over here and contribute. So that's what keeps me going. Um, and it's kind of what, what drives everything we try to do. Well, thank you both for getting out of bed this morning and speaking with me and making time for this. It's been a pleasure speaking with you both. And, and thank you for highlighting the work that you all are working on right now. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Andrew. SEG produces Seismic Sound Off to benefit its members, the scientific community, and inform the public on the value of geophysics. To show your support for this show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Simply go to Seismic Sound Off on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on your phone. It takes less than five seconds to leave a five-star rating and is the number one action you can take to show your appreciation for this free resource. And follow the podcast while you are on the app to be notified when each new episode releases. Original music created by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Ali McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.